0: This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank.
1: Hi, this is Kevin Bisson, CFO of Ipswich, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is episode 392.
1: Lives and environment, and I didn't feel comfortable, I felt lost. Whereas when I moved to Harris, um they break up into divisions and, and, and sub business units. So, sub business unit and such was around $50 million um, revenue. And actually, that was a, a perfect size from my viewpoint of being really able to get into the business, all aspects of the business. It actually gave me that ability to really get right across the organization and understand all the parts
0: point. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Christopher Baker, CFO of Goodwill Silicon Valley. We all know there are multiple paths to the CFO office, but no matter what path one takes, future finance leaders must be on the lookout for strategy experience. But where to find it? Chris Baker explains why smaller units and departments where finance executives can be more hands-on and work beside other functional groups is very often the optimal path. Our discussion begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations From record to report, visit workiva.com slash CFO.
1: Experiences through the years, especially as I'm more of the latter part of my career. But um, I remember I left college. I was moved um, to London, and I worked for Shell Oil Company, which was, as you know, a very large company in the centre of London. There, now, I have over 5,000 individuals uh, in the uh, organisation in London. But uh, I remember. You know, working there, it had a tremendous um, sports complex. It had everything to, uh, you know, bring along the employee and, and really make their experience a good experience. But the one thing that really struck me, the, the reason I left there, I remember uh, looking at an opportunity to reduce costs, which I had brought up to my manager at that time, and I said, we ought to be thinking of this, this, and that. And his response to that is, that's not your job. Your job is to fill in those numbers and not to uh, think that way, or that's our job. So immediately I actually walked out of Shell Oil Company that day and never walked back. Really? So that was um, the way I am. I I like to try and uh, make a difference. Um, I actually did start my own company at that point in time, used to sell Used products and uh, had a cycle of selling that, which is very similar to the Goodwill model today. So that actually gave me a lot of um, strength. I believe it really made myself accountable to myself, having that ownership, and really developed a further drive within me to be successful. Once I left that, I came back. I started a family, and we decided, hey, it's more beneficial to the family that I had a steady job. So we. I moved in uh, to an American corporation, at that time I moved to Cambridge, and um, I worked, again, it was a case in point, I started off as a uh, financial accountant, and within um, five years I was the finance director, and within 10 years I'd actually moved on, and uh, also was in charge of most of operations. Um, It was a very interesting time, it was a very challenging environment. It was very much a higher and fire environment. But, um, again, I think it was that ownership and that accountability and the ability to speak my mind that helped me and kept me in good stead within the um, different, different culture, that American-UK culture, which is very different.
2: And I, I want to mention, if it's, it's okay, um, that that American corporation was the Harris Corporation, and uh, can you tell us something of the uh, the work you were doing at that time? What was uh, and what was sort of the heavy lifting?
1: Um, I remember some of the uh, challenges I did have. We worked across um, Europe. I remember one specifically where we'd acquired a company in in France, and uh, it was a very strong individual leader of that company who sold it to Harris Corporation, but was very reluctant to let go of the reins and to bring on board or let us bring on board the Harris uh, corporate structure. Um, I remember being out there and uh, being in the hotel for breakfast and thinking, how, how am I going to be able to change this, this hostile environment and being very nervous about it at the time? Um, but it's interesting. It really is a case in point is to being able to speak to the individual, the, the CEO at the time, and um, really understand what was his key drivers. His key drivers was his business, the development of the business. It was technology, so it's the development of the product. And uh, one of the key things he wanted was a development budget. He didn't have much of a development budget, and as we talked more and more, it know, it opened up the conversation and it made me realize that the majority of their development budget was being utilized in product support of existing uh, products in the field, which is separate from development. And, you know, by separating that out, I then gave him an ability to have a totally separate development budget that was what he really wanted to drive the business. It also supported Harris from the viewpoint of, Now we could separate out the product um, support costs so we could see how efficient and what the deficiencies were within the existing product line. So it's a win-win. And the third line of that was the ability to um, then, by having a clearly defined development um, bucket there, we managed to then leverage that with the um, local area um, grants to be able to get a development grant from, uh, I believe it was in Rennes in Brittany, that uh, we could actually then invest into the business. So actually they helped us pay for that development. So it's a win-win-win situation. And then I did get the respect, not so much the respect, but at least I got the CEO there to realize that we weren't just there to pull all the assets out of his business and strip it. We were there to support him as well. So that was a important thing, but it was really understanding what his key drivers were, and that was critical and one of those learning moments. I remember, you know, really thinking, wow, I think I'm really pleased that um, we managed to achieve that.
2: But what was the opportunity then that brought you to the States?
1: uh, Interesting you should ask that, Jack. Yeah, that was a case in point. Actually, um, there was a couple of learning experiences there. One was I actually um, at that time my my relationship I'd uh, separated from my wife and and um, I had the opportunity at Harris of, uh, they acquired a company in uh, Silicon Valley doing software automation and uh, had two two branches one in France one in the UK and I did the due diligence and then this was back in 2000 and they actually. Um, had no one over here everyone was leaving so they needed someone to come over to the states to steady the ship for a couple of weeks um i volunteered to come over to um silicon valley and i came in and again used that same technique of really trying to understand the organization understand the individuals that were still left within the organization to take us forward and developed a rapport and they asked me to stay on obviously It was a very stressful time, but um, Harris were really good about that. They provided me, my family, to come over a couple of times a year, and I also was still responsible uh, had the directorship of the um, French operation. So I was going over to Europe once a quarter. So it managed to um, ease me into the U.S. and uh, into um, Harris Corporation over there.
2: Would was that like post-merger integration work, or how would you characterize it? Yeah.
1: It was post-merger. I, I walked in uh, post-merger, but it was a casing point. They they acquired a company, and really they acquired a bit of a lemon as such. It was um, the technology and the way the software was written was such that it wasn't sustainable for the long term. So we really had to step in, break it down, uh, go through and understand the sense of the business, and develop a lot more support side to make certain that we could stay profitable. So it's a, a challenging from that respect.
2: And at the same time, you've entered uh, the world of Silicon Valley, where I would think, it, it, in some way, the mindset was different.
1: Yeah, it's a very different, and uh, you know that that excited me. The, the level, um, the intensity. I mean, I remember my. My software engineers used to come in, walk in about ten thirty in the morning, eleven o'clock. I think, well, why are they walking in so late? But you could see at night, eleven o'clock at night, you'll still see the cars in the car park, and and their their commitment and enthusiasm for developing a new next level technology was uh, stunning. I mean,
2: did you? desire to work in smaller in a smaller enterprise or, or that wasn't really the criteria you would use to go forward? No,
1: actually, although I was in with Shell I did find that I was in too large an environment and I didn't feel comfortable, I felt lost. Whereas when I moved to Harris, um they break up into divisions and and then sub business units. So sub business unit and such was around 50 million dollars um, revenue, and actually that was um, a perfect size from my viewpoint of being really able to get into the business, all aspects of the business. I actually, as I mentioned, that I took over everything from order to customer service. Um, so. It actually gave me that ability to really get right across the organization and understand all the touch points because it's not the case in point of in finances getting the results and um, saying, hey, we missed uh, revenue by this or Our expenses were there. It's really understanding what's driving that revenue, what's driving the, that expense, what's driving that inefficiency right at the front touch point. So it's all those different touch points across the organization. So
2: let's uh, segue to to Goodwill Silicon Valley. How do you uh, w- what happens next? Do you leave uh, Harris Corp, or what uh, what transpires?
1: Well, really, I'd I'd left Harris Corporation. They'd moved the the head off. They decided to buy a much larger software automation company to swallow up um, the the one they bought in Silicon Valley and uh, cover the the goodwill as it were. And um, I went into um, consulting, and I was working across in various companies in the Valley consulting, and um, a friend of my wife's was the new CEO of Goodwill and um, asked me to come and do some pro bono to get them up and running into Great Plains uh, software system, for, and uh, which I did. And then later that year, they, they were trying to hire someone, and um, they brought someone in who lasted a two weeks and realized that uh, it was too complex for them, and Mike was on my doorstep and asked if I could come in and, and assist them, uh, get through the year-end and just get straight. And I walked into Goodwill, and it was, um, I actually did have another very good opportunity at that time to go off to uh, consulting, which I expected to do. But once I walked into Goodwill, uh, I saw the potential of the organization. and. I saw the mission and, you know, the fact that we're really, what we're trying to do is maximize the return on the business so that we can reinvest in the mission and make an impact on individuals' lives, people with barriers to employment, get them back into the workplace. It was just too compelling to me. And also, I saw this, the whole work, I, I really recognized within the workforce, everyone I spoke to that that thirst for knowledge, that thirst for being able to take it from a thrift mentality to a business mentality and really wanting to succeed and really bought into the mission. So it was a no-brainer for me. Once I was here, I was was hooked.
2: So how is goodwill structured organizationally, and, and how do the geographies all come together?
1: So really it's a case, Goodwill um, Goodwill International has the brand name and, uh, that's, and that's based out of Washington. But basically they, they give the right to uh, counties certain areas. So we have the right to um, Santa Clara and San Benito counties to utilize the Goodwill name. And we're part of a family so we pay dues based on our revenues and we get back from that the use of the Goodwill name. Collaboration within Goodwill, training from Goodwill, and um, and also the logos. Yeah.
2: So, what would be the, the sort of weight class of Goodwill Silicon Valley uh, if we were to look at that the, the Goodwill ecosystem?
1: Yeah, well, we're, we're probably a medium-sized Goodwill, and I uh, sorry I sort of mentioned before each Goodwill is its own 501c3 with its own board of directors. I mean that's a plus and a minus, uh, which we can talk about later, but. Basically, we have 19 stores, and we also have an agist store which sells the product that we don't sell in the stores separately within an auction environment. So we have 19 stores in total. Overall, we have $50 million in revenue. In addition to the retail stores, we also have social enterprises. Um, We had car detailing, mattress recycling, contract manufacturing, kitting and packaging, and also our recycle operations, which is uh, where really people, planet, profit is with the three P's, is really key to goodwill. It's interesting you used
2: the phrase social enterprise, which, of course, is quite the buzz phrase these days, but in some ways I think uh, goodwill with the original social enterprise, perhaps. Are we? Is that a stretch? It really is.
1: I mean, when we say social we we, we bring individuals, whether they uh, – veterans or incarcerated individuals, and we bring them into the social enterprises. We train them. We not only employ them, we provide them training, we provide them a mentorship through that, and we provide placement out into the outside world so they can uh, get a job that's sustainable for them and their families, and we, we also monitor them, not just getting the placements, but the retention within that placement as well, because that's critical to the success.
2: Now, goodwill is probably not what people think of when they think of businesses that are leveraging new technologies, but I, uh, Chris, I know you have been very much involved in uh, the adoption of new technologies in finance and uh, how goodwill are using those technologies for uh, their business model innovation. Um, so maybe you can just share with us your mindset and some of what you're up to when it comes to leveraging technologies
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I mean, we are one of the things I came on board here was to really take the um, law from the thrift age into cutting edge. Silicon Valley technology. I remember a board member saying to me, "Hey, we're in Silicon Valley. We should be at the cutting edge." And as such, I developed a five-year strategic plan. I mean, what's critical here is, again, to be successful in an organisation, you need to break down uh, silos. You need to be really able to collaborate. And one of the first things I made certain I did was I changed our platform um, more to the um, large. Uh, Google platform, it wasn't just reliant on the Microsoft uh, and everyone having their own files in their own folder. So it's sharing of data was very critical to me. So being able to go to the cloud, having it on the web there so that they can go into a Drive and they share the information. And it's one source of information. We don't have five different files. That's really critical. Um, also then making certain that I have an ERP and a point of sale system that integrates together and provides me real-time information. Then pulling that, that information into business intelligence, getting away from that spreadsheet mentality, as I mentioned before, and creating the amount of time we spent creating spreadsheets, the amount of time we, we spent doing all these things, we're so far behind the curve. On providing the information to make an impact, plus the fact that we're not really looking at the data, spending enough time looking at the data, we're spending all that time creating the data. So, uh, developing, pulling in, we went through we went through about uh, three different business intelligence tools before we ended up on the one we're at now, where we pull in data, we pull in data sets, and it's really critical that you know don't look at a business how much does that cost? What is truly the benefit of that business intelligence, how easy it is to use, how can it create really good reports so that it can really make an impact on the organization and that can be easily understood by management across the organization. So we actually pull together all our various data, whether it be payroll, sales, whatever. So we pull it together and provide key meaningful um, uh, data that can be drilled in by day, by month, by time, by store, by location, by hour, even. And, by, and one of the critical measures we measure is um, our, um, our labour costs. One of the critical is our earned rate per hour right across our organisation. Um, one of the things we've developed recently is that. Uh, the other thing is we actually track every item that we put on the floor, so I know we know in the organization who produced that item, and that's critical. Now we have a, a method that we, we actually incentivize our sorters based on the revenue that's uh, sold from the products they put on the floor, not the production. Before we used to incentivize by production, which was wrong, because what we found was that anyone can put a lot of product on the floor. If it didn't sell, it wasn't beneficial to the organization, yet we were giving a productivity bonus to this person. Now we actually measure them by the actual revenue they generate on behalf of the organization. Um, going forward, we're looking further to uh, utilize predictive analytics to really take the data into these algorithms and then see if there's trends and pants so we can maximize our pricing. And the other thing from that is that um, as we all know, we can only have X number of key reports or measures for managers to really manage to, otherwise it gets too much and too evolved. But at the same time, where we really want to take it is to have some exception reports. So in other words, if there's anything that goes out of alignment on specific, whether it's the number of items put out in shoes or the price points, that we can send out an exception report to the district manager so they can address anything ahead of time rather than behind the time. So it's really taking some of these um leveraging the technology to take us to the cutting edge of, you know, where we are. And uh, as you know, we're not just retail, we are e-commerce, and I'm talking not just retail, I'm talking e-commerce, I'm talking all of our businesses that we're looking at in this respect.
2: Help me understand. What is the e-commerce part of your model then? What is what what are you selling? What are the, what what are the transactions happening?
1: Now? So really, what we do is we do take. Uh, we see anything in the stores as we sort through that we believe is a collectible or an item with certain brand names. We actually then send through to e-commerce. It's a case in point of obviously you've got a, a limited audience at your store, especially for collectibles, and you know. To be able to maximise the value of those items, you sell it on e-commerce. You've got worldwide web, basically. I mean, it's obviously most of our sales are within the US, but we do sell across the globe. And if it's a uh, collectible, then you've got those people that collect those specific items will be bidding up that item to what is the true value of that item, rather than. I mean, really, I think. In a way, we were creating social enterprises within our stores and still are to a certain extent of our customers coming in, buying the goods that we're selling, and then uh, making a lot of profit on that. We're actually taking some of that away so we can actually gain that profit so that we can then reinvest back into the mission and our different programs. So what's the competitive landscape like? Who who are your competitors? I mean – that's, again, that's a very good question because um, personally, I, I look. You could say, obviously, you've got um, Salvation Army, you've got Hope. I don't see those as competitors. My, I mean, they are competitors, but they're not because we're we're here to make an impact on the community. I want them to do well. I want us to do well. Who I see the competitors are the for-profit organizations such as Savers that say, hey, X amount go to uh, non-profit. But that percentage is so small, most of that goes to the shareholders. That's who I see are key competitors. Those are the ones I'd like to put out of business. I I would love to see all donations come in, be maximized, and uh, and that, that profit go back into a mission, whether it be Goodwill or Hope or Salvation Army.
2: And so one of our favorite questions, what are the key metrics, then, that you're paying close attention to?
1: I mean, obviously, um, we measure, um, look every day. I can look at my, my sales um, broken down by donation or new products. Um, also, production. Production drives sales, so that's critical. We look at our um, our labor rates. As I mentioned before, making certain my earned rate per hour, that's that's critical. That's more of a, what I call a lag measure. When I say lead and lag measures, I can see today what my production is. I can see what my um, sales are. A lag measure is something that takes time to be able to um, to see, but it's still just as important. A critical another one is critical to us is our turnover. Now, we expect high turnover. For example, last year our turnover was around 100, 120 percent. That makes it very difficult to run a business profitably when you have that level of turnover. So again, it really made us step back and say, who are our core positions that really drive the organization that we do not need one high turnover? And then we're saying in these other areas, we expect higher turnover. So again, it's making certain that we've got the right benefits and the right pay to keep those core positions because those core positions will drive our business to the next level. Those core positions will train our missing employees that come into the organization so that they're successful when they move on outside of the organization to um, the business world. So that that's a crit- critical measure as well.
2: What does your finance team look like today? I mean does it have that the similar mix of skills of a of a traditional
1: finance team? It probably does, and I'd really like to spend a bit of time on that, because when I came on board, uh, it was very dysfunctional. I had to restate the three years' accounts. Um, That being said, um, the board said to me, you'll probably have to replace most of your finance team. Nine years later, most of that finance team, 95% of them are still here. We have... We really spent time on mentoring. Uh, the, the thirst for knowledge was excellent. Reorganising it, one of the key things is really, as I mentioned, breaking down silos, making certain everyone understands the importance of what everyone else does and how each person affects each other. So, I made it so that they had to develop their procedures, develop the workflow, of their procedures, and then each individual had to stand up in front of the team and go through that. And we all talked through where the control points are, where the value-added is, where it's not value-added. So we developed much more of a team-type approach and a lot more knowledge sharing. So that was really critical. I mean, it was critical from team bonding as well as knowledge and making certain we had processes so if someone did leave, we've always got, procedures and processes that someone can step into. At the same time, I even, you know, so I've taken the team now up a level. Then I've challenged them even more because I believe in not just talking the talk but walking the walk. In other words, internships. I'm very strong on internships. Um, and we actually have internships in IT and finance where I bring in. Individuals with disabilities, uh, individuals on the autism spectrum, who've got a lot of diversity and a lot to bring to the workforce, and I bring those into the organization into certain roles, and and we mentor those individuals within the department as well. And that's probably very different from most organizations, but it it works well, it builds that bonding within the department. We we think of ourselves as the goodwill family here. that's just so critical that people come in, they feel respected, and they people got a smile on their face, and they feel this is, you know, this is home from home. We spend a lot of time from work at uh, uh, work, and we really need to make certain people enjoy that and are respected for what they do.
2: Chris, I think you might have already shared a, a few aha moments with us, but uh, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, an aha moment. Uh, Have we touched on that one already, or uh, do you have something else you'd like to share?
1: Well, I think I have touched on it slightly. The the one that really comes to mind is, you know, as I I mentioned to you earlier, was the the fact that we changed um, our production and our our production um, bonus, and it's now based on earned rate per hour. So we really sort of – took away, you know, hey, that's a production, that's a metric. Hey, this is your sales, that's a metric. Here's your sell-through, that's a metric. You know, and and we then, and this is your sell price, that's a separate metric. Basically, by tracking um, that individual, the items they put on the floor, down to the revenue that generated, that really takes all those metrics and puts it into one. And that really sort of drives the business. And then that sort of... (laughs) Focuses them more, and and the other one I'd like to mention is what I really enjoy is that we do have a management training program, an internal one here, and the fact um, I you know being involved in that, uh, spending a couple of sessions with the managers, and really providing training for them, which is you know understanding who the participants are and then being able to. Have that training on finance and being able to ask them questions or show them how what they do impacts the bottom line or elements of the of the retail store or the salvage operations, recycle operations. How much of an impact um, that can have by not ordering product to put on the floor or the fact that we're not sorting the product correctly, but Really, being able to see all those light bulbs go off when you're, tra- you know, providing this uh, management training and asking them questions and showing them real life examples and seeing the light bulbs go off of these managers and seeing that that can really make an impact from them, uh, you know, and in the organisation.
0: Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're about to enter the mentoring round with Chris Baker, CFO of Goodwill Silicon Valley, after these words from our sponsor. You want smart? year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market.
2: Okay, we're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and uh, mentor your finance leader peers and uh, future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today?
1: I think what's so exciting now is the technology that's coming along. We've mentioned that earlier about business intelligence and the ability now to um, really have this information up front, this business intelligence, that we can spend more time now looking at the results and then mentoring you know, management across the organization. We're, Finance is going from a viewpoint of providing in a p and and doing the taxes, etc., to really being able to uh, mentor management on finance and the impacts of what they're doing and how they can improve. So I think that's an exciting change as we move forward, uh, really critical to me. What do you wish someone had told you? at the
2: start of your CFO career? In other words, when you first stepped into that office, what is it
1: that you wish someone had told you? I'd, I'd be honest with you, if I look back at it over the years, you know, and I'm certain many um, individuals listening now would say, you know, we, you get so involved in the organization and that work-life balance, the, the, the fact that you don't need to do it all yourself, it's more important that, you have work-life balance. You don't work 24-7, and you also use your experience and knowledge to pass down through the organization rather than to do it all yourself. So in other words, through the years, I realized when I look back and with some regrets, I look back and say, hey, you know what, I, I spent... I got too involved. I should have handed down. I shouldn't have worked those type of that. I should have stepped back. It would have been better for me to have done that. I mean, those are the things. I think it's really having that balance through your life. and make sure that you always ask yourself the question. Say every six months you step back and say, hey, what am I doing? What value am I adding? How's my team doing? Am I doing items that my team should be doing? So those are the critical things I'd say. Is there a
2: personal habit that you has you believe has contributed to your professional
1: success? Um, the ability to listen, I mean, really it's a case in point. Understanding that, you know, whether it's your employees, whether it's your peers, or whether it's even your business partners, your vendors, that all of them want to be successful, all, all of them want – Ninety-nine percent of people want to do the best they can, you know. And really, you know, when things aren't going so well, is to really understand where they're coming from so you can understand where the issues... And and not use it as a tool to be that individual up. It's as a tool to help them and to really mentor them well, you know, say, well, if you're doing that, what if we did it this way? How, How would that work? So it's more really... I want that person to succeed. I want my employees to succeed. And I want us to succeed. And I want my, as I say, I had a vendor on the phone the other day where we're developing a software. I said, if you're successful, I'm successful. I want you to be successful. And we, we can't have any hidden agendas here. We, we really need to be honest with each other. And that ability to, you know, talk frankly with individuals and listen to their point of view.
2: Chris, I almost forgot to ask you whether you have a book you'd like to
1: recommend. Uh, do you have a book? Is that a good question? No, I'd like you to ask that question because um, my my past, as you know, I'm here. I work for Goodwill. Uh, we we assist people with barriers to employment, and um, one of uh, the key areas here is the power, and the book I I really like is *The Power of Different*. It's by um, I believe it's uh, Schultz, and it, it's a book that really looks at individuals with neurodiversity and what they can bring into the the workforce. And you know, it's breaking down these barriers that we have. You know, one one individual in 68 now is 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 on the um, the spectrum, yet uh, the workforce has a very employs a very very small percentage of that, and. You know, we've got to recognise that society needs to change, and recognise where society's going. We've got to get involvement and bring in, in, embrace people that think differently. That takes us to the next level. You know, it really enhances the business. It doesn't take away from the business. If you have people who all, all think the same way, you're never going to take that business forward. So it's good to have that. Ability to take on people who think differently.
2: Okay, our final question. Over the next twelve months, what are your priorities as a finance leader?
1: Um, really, as I mentioned, we 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 just um, implemented last year uh, new ERP systems. Uh, we're implementing predictive analytics and we're going through that now. So it's really optimization of software and to, to the extent that I can say, hey, you know, I feel we have a really steady platform and that I could then leverage that platform for other goodwills and other organizations. I've already spoken to uh, my vendor that I could just create an instance rather than have them having to create recreate the will. I can create an instance for them. As I move forward, we have a lot of challenges in this industry, especially with minimum wage in in Silicon Valley, and I fully support it. I mean, I don't know how anyone supports themselves on minimum wage in the Valley. But at the same time, those cost constraints are huge within our our organization. So I can see a lot of consolidation coming down the line, and I really want to be ready for that consolidation. So we have – we have – scalability and we have processes that we can seamlessly bring bring on board other organisations so we can carry on and make a big impact on the mission as I mentioned before. Chris Baker, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Theater. Thank you, Jack.